Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. Hope you're well. We have got a show and a half for you today. Might be a show in three quarters even. It's full of stuff, absolutely chock full. So you should strap yourself in and grip the handles and get ready for takeoff and we'll poodle on down the road like a 1978 Skoda. It has been quite the week though. The disappointment of last weekend against Hull dropping points at home, and then the midweek shenanigans, which is pretty much all I can call what happened against Anderlecht shenanigans. Because let's face it, we won, and that's great, but it was a performance which left much to be desired from an Arsenal point of view, right? Stuff like um, cohesion, balance, common sense when we had the ball, Rhythm, fluidity, defensive awareness, attacking verve, and overall it was a a performance without any real solidity in any area. Perhaps some of that is because we don't have the right defensive platform. When you're playing a debutante goalkeeper, when you're playing a 19-year-old right-back, and I, I like Callum Chambers, I like what he's done this season, I loved his cross in the final few minutes, but from a defensive point of view, he had a very, very suspect game. And that's part of growing up as a footballer. I'm not being hugely critical of him here. I think you have to expect that from young players who really haven't played an awful lot of football. You've got Nacho Monreal at centre-half. Um... And he's not a centre-half, he's a left-back. And that is an issue. Ask any centre-half to play at full-back, and they'll be like, after 15 minutes, shit, all this running up and down the wing all the time. You you run up and you have to run back again? This is terrible. Uh, And there's a positional knowledge and awareness that comes from playing in a position most of your career. And he's got that at left-back, and he doesn't have it at centre-half. And that was obvious. And I think Per Mertesacker struggles without Lauren Koscielny uh, beside him. The sum of those two parts is perhaps greater than the individual talents. That Koscielny and Mertesacker work so well together, they they have a good partnership. But the only time we've seen Koscielny and Mertesacker together this season, uh, Koscielny's been carrying a chronic injury, and Mertesacker is, uh, by his own admission, uh, his season hasn't gone well so far. He spoke yesterday about how he's, you know, uh, had a bit of a World Cup hangover. Even though he didn't go all the way to the final and play in every game, it still affected him. And he's, uh, you know, fair play for admitting that. Kieran Gibbs had a decent game. But look, you know, you're always going to struggle when you're not confident about the defensive part of your game. Matthew Flamini didn't play particularly well. Um, he had to do a lot of filling in at right back in fairness, and he was aware there. But when you see him doing a step over a dummy in midfield and you're going, what the fuck are you doing? Jack Wilshire didn't do it at all. Not at all. Everything he could have possibly done wrong against Anderlecht on Wednesday, he did it. Uh, always looking for the for the most difficult option. And to a certain extent, I understand it because he's trying to make something happen. But sometimes you just need to be simple and keep the ball rather than give it straight back to build the momentum that you need to push a team back to get them worried. If you keep giving them the ball back, trying to play Hollywood passes, it's never going to happen. Aaron Ramsey... Not his best game by a long way. Danny Welbeck didn't get a lot of service. Sandy Gazorla had a couple of decent chances to score. One of those goes in. Perhaps it's a different a different situation. But Santi's end product has been sadly missing. And all you've got then is Alexis uh, trying his fucking hole off, which he does in every single game. And it's amazing to watch. I think it's probably unfair to say to the rest of the players, why can't you do what he does? Because what he does, it's very rare. 
to see a player do that for 90 minutes week in, week out, or twice a week to see him chase from uh, front to back and back to front. Physically, most players can't do that. But in terms of attitude, there's a lot that they could learn from him. So we're we're 1-0 down, could have been 2-0 down, they hit the bar, could have been 2-0 down from the rebound from that, the dude put the shot wide, uh, could have been 2-0 down when Monreal stumbled and the guy went through but took a heavy touch, Martinez made a save, Martinez made another save to keep it at 2, we could have been 3 or 4-0 down, we, the game could have been out of sight, and you're looking at it going, how the fuck are we going to get anything from this game? All of a sudden Chambers puts in a cross, gives volley is absolutely superb, 1-1, one, one. you're thinking, okay, well, we've snatched a draw here. That's something, I guess. You know, not being beaten, that's good. And then Podolski scores. Off Alexis's hard work keeping the ball alive. Podolski was there, super first touch, cracking finish into the top court. And you 2-1. Uh, we've won a game in which we played as badly as we've played all season. Shenanigans. That's what that is. There's no other word for it. I don't quite understand it, but that's football for you. We've been on the receiving end of some of those from time to time. Played really well, deserved to win the game, and all of a sudden you get hauled back and overtaken. You're thinking, what the fuck? How did that happen? So looking at it from that angle, you know it's good. It's nice when it happens the other way around, when we're not the ones on the receiving end of a a late fisting. But you can be as happy as you want with the the result, and I'm delighted with it, and the three points are great, but you can't take the result in isolation and not look at the performance and not be a little bit worried about it. But we'll discuss that in a few moments' time with our guest, our first guest, two guests on this particular show, uh, because we're going to chat football now in a moment with Good Player, and uh, a little bit later on, we will be chatting to Amy Lawrence uh, about her new book called Invincible, which as you'll have gathered, is about the Invincibles and the unbeaten season, the unbeaten league season, if we're going to be uh, exact about it. So we'll be chatting to Amy a little bit later on. Uh, We'll also be looking ahead to the Sunderland game. Uh, If there's any team news between now and the uh, end of the show, by the time I'm finished recording this, then we'll bring you that ahead of what's going to be perhaps an interesting game this weekend because Sunderland obviously are at home after getting spanked 8-0 last weekend. And they will be absolutely determined not to lose at home in front of their fans to try and make amends because that's embarrassing. And as players, they're going to be really, really determined to put this right. And given our propensity to, you know, concede from the first goal or to let in silly goals against teams that we should be beating, they might not be too unhappy that they're playing us. But anyway, that's all to come between now and the end of the show. So we'll uh, crack on and chat to our first guest this week, somebody who hasn't been on the podcast for a little while. A welcome back to Good Player. Hi there. Hi there. Uh, let's start with what happened on Wednesday night in the Champions League in Anderlecht in Belgium. Arsenal heading towards defeat, um, perhaps not unexpectedly given the way that w- we were playing. And then in the, la- in the last couple of minutes, two goals, one from Gibbs, one from Podolski, turns it all around. Arsenal come away with three points, which was the aim going over there. How much in one category can you put, right, okay, it's results, it's all about winning, it doesn't really matter how you do it, with the concerns that are pretty obvious about the way Arsenal played? Uh, it's tricky because if you, you know, if you if you moan when we play badly and win, and then you moan when we uh, play well and lose, you know, you're kind of not being quite fair. So it's a tricky it's a tricky thing to balance out. I mean, I think you know what strikes me is how many how many of our points this season. I say points to include uh, Europe and and the league have come in the 90th minute. Mm. I mean, it's it's kind of <laughs> kind of slightly scary actually where we'd be without without injury time if you like is that not also a quality though because people have always said about other teams particularly man united well you know you think they're going to drop some points and then right at the death you know they 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 get the result there's perhaps a small difference in the sense that united were were dominant in in the games that they did that and we've been kind of saving them though yeah look, there is some quality to be had in it what i would say is that the invincibles were never behind after the 69th minute that is being in control, and that is being yeah, that's real quality. And they they never had to get <laughs> that equaliser um, or winner. So but yeah, there is some credit to be had in that, of, of course. But you just realise you're slightly it's a it's a fairly high wire act that you're performing if you're continually uh, getting what wins or what points you are getting 
um, you know, in the 90th minute. It's, it's not like we're, we're kind of interspersing these with a load of 3-0 victories, frankly, apart yeah. from the one at Villa. But, you know, so, but, you know, credit where credit's due, we kind of, we, we, we got there, we scored two good goals, and, and, and that's, you know, it certainly was a, crucial because it makes a huge difference to, to the look of that group. Mm. I mean, it does make a big impact on the group because if Arsenal win their next game and Dortmund win their next game, then both teams are uh, ostensibly through. Exactly, and, that, and that's the nature of Champions League football. And, you know, things can change very quickly. You know, we, you know, I think you can, on the one hand, give credit, and on the other hand, you can kind of say that you know that there is a continuing issue with with how we're functioning this season, and, and it's, it's concerning. Uh, it came on the back of a performance against Hull, which uh, again we've got a, a late goal to thank for getting us something from the game, but uh, strangely ineffectual. Arsenal performance, particularly in the second half when they scored after 31 seconds, you think there's loads of time to get something back, and you know it just didn't happen for the for the vast majority of that half until perhaps the last 10 minutes, including injury time. You know, Arsenal Arsenal kind of pounded Hull a bit, but it didn't happen until then. So this, I don't know whether it's the passive nature of the game we're playing or the way that we're set up is completely negating the qualities of the team as an attacking force. I don't know if you saw the graphics that against Hull and against Anderlecht on Wednesday night, the the average positional graphic shows Arsenal pretty much right down the centre of the pitch with no width. Um, Is that where the issue can be solved or perhaps the return of Theo Walcott might help? Yeah, I mean, anyone who went to the whole game didn't need a graphic to tell them that. I mean, it was uh, it was <laughs> painful, frankly. Um, yeah, I mean, what he told me about the whole game was that I thought for much of the first half we played very well. We played some really nice football. You know, the, the, I had good things to say about every single one of our kind of midfielders and forwards about the, the way they were playing, basically. Um, and then, and then we just kind of. It was so hard. You couldn't even lay your finger on it. You couldn't say so-and-so is having an absolute stinker. So-and-so is having a mare. It was just something went. And you, know, you did feel, and it's cliche, but you felt there was a lack of someone kind of grabbing us by the, you know, grabbing us and kind of taking us forward and leading the whole team forward with him. We, we, we just looked listless. And, you know, and, well, we, well, we, Particularly knocking on their ball. There was a header that Alexis had that the keeper turned over. Which, but that was the 86th okay, minute. That was the 86th minute. But other than that, I, I don't even think we were particularly knocking on the door. And frankly, you know, when it came, I mean, it was a well-worked goal. But it, and, and, you know, and in a way, it was we did go straight down the middle, basically, at score, which is what we've been trying to do the whole the whole game, uh, the whole second half, and, and to very, very little effect. So it, it kind of did come off. You didn't, you didn't exactly say to yourself, well, this has been coming yeah. <laughs> that way. You know, um, it really didn't feel like that. And, and so... You know, it was it was trouble. I was quite troubled by it actually because I I felt like you know I was almost more worried because we there were some okay performances generally over ninety minutes. And, you know, it's hard to lay your finger on it, but clearly something wasn't right. Is is it worrying that if that was identified as an issue? And then uh, I saw on the the breakdown on Arsenal.com, Adrian Clark talking about that that Arsenal were you know trying to funnel everything down the centre. That the same issue exists. Uh, against Anderlecht on Wednesday night, and the fact that it was ongoing, that we didn't react until they scored, uh, at which no. point we were we we had to make some changes simply because you know something had to give and we had to try and get something out of the game. But there was no real proactive decision taken by the manager to say, okay, look, it's an hour has gone, we we haven't played well, let's do something different. No, and I mean, I think the width issue is, is a major issue. Yeah, Walcott is quite clearly an out-and-out winger, uh, you know, wide man. There's no ambiguity about that. Oxley Chamberlain, he, he sort of is, but he's he's not really in a sense. I think he is compared to the likes of, you know, Erdogan, Cazorla, et cetera, such as, you know, who all have kind of instincts to go to go central. Um, and, and so, you know, in a way, one, one of the guys who's... Um, so one of the guys who very obviously is quite a wide player, if you like, is Kieran Gibbs. He started life as a left winger. And, you know, there were quite a few times last season when we brought him, we brought Nacho Monreal on for someone other than Gibbs, pushed Gibbs forward to left wing. And, you know, and it gave us a, a kind of a, a second winger if Walcott was playing or, or a winger full stop if Walcott wasn't playing. And, of course, the problem is that, well, we can't do that at the moment because Monreal's playing centre-back. And that, that was something that really frustrated me on Saturday, actually, because you see 
for me, that really illustrated the kind of the short termism of the of the the kind of lack of defenders that we have, mm. um, and you know, and that decision. And it's not just that you know you get slightly unlucky at the back, and you have to, and then you know you're playing a young kid or whatever. It's it's a, you know your reserve left back who has a very specific role of coming in, being a very decent left back, and allowing your first choice left back to go left wing because he's one of the best wingers at the club. Couldn't do that because he was playing centre back, mm. and 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 that you know, and you realise that when you're when you're short, it it accentuates. You, know, you can be one player short, but it, it kind of accentuates and magnifies, um, and and that that was frustrating to me. I mean, we've seen that kind of problem before. That there's almost an assumption that because you're a defender, you can play anywhere in defence. But look at what happened to Johan Juru, who was asked to play right back for a period. That is that essentially broke his Arsenal career. So to, to put yourself in a position where you're having to play a guy who who isn't versatile, certain players can do it. We know Bakary Sanya, for example, was able to do it, but they're the exception rather than the norm. Yeah, I quite agree. I've got no I've got no argument with Benga saying that Callum Chambers can play right back and centre back, fine. But Kieran Gibbs can play left back and centre back. Oh, sorry, Nacho Monreal can play left back and centre back. Mm. Not really, no. You know, Nigel Winterburn couldn't play left back and centre back. You know, uh, Sylvania couldn't have. You know, Ashley Cole couldn't have. Kieran Gibbs couldn't have. You know, they're, they're, a lot of these players are the exception rather than the norm. Those who, those who can, and uh, and you know, it's not great. There's obvious frustration around about what's happened so far this season. Obviously, most of it is down to the way that we've played or not played, because you could count on one hand the number of performances that have been really convincing from Arsenal. Um, but ha- has the frustration been magnified or exacerbated by the goodwill that we went into the season with, if you get me? Because if you remember back to when it went wrong against Villa and we bought Ozil and then won 10 or 11 games on the trot, that it came from a a place of low expectation. Whereas having won the FA Cup in May, having gone out and bought Alexis and Callum Chambers and Matthew Debushi, and I've forgotten who else we bought uh, in the summer, you know, before the season started, there was an expectation that, right, this Arsenal team can kick on, can build on all the time they spent at the top of the table last season. And it just doesn't seem to have happened. No, it doesn't seem to have happened. And there's also, um, I actually, I actually think that that there is a uh, there is a lot more goodwill than <laughs> there may well have been. And I think one of the things that's actually slightly clouding people's focus is the fact that we've only lost one game. Um, and so, you know, you don't tend to get so upset about a draw. Yeah, the team they kind of got applauded off against Hull uh, by quite a few people uh, on Saturday, which was extraordinary, frankly. Um, you know, and and if you actually look at how We've done. If I was to say to you that we've done worse than having won our one four and lost four out of our first eight, yeah, you know, that's that's kind of striking, isn't it? Because one four and lost four, we'd be saying it's been a pretty bad start, frankly. Um, and, and so people, I, I think people are. It's actually causing people to lose focus on that a bit. Also, the fact that uh, the likes of City and Liverpool and United aren't exactly racing away. So there's only Chelsea that's kind of uh, kind of galloping away at the moment. It's kind of you know, I think he's actually slightly getting away with it at the moment, to be perfectly honest. And I think, I think you're right, there is goodwill after Wembley as well. But there's also, you know, there's such a lingering kind of sense of, I, I think it's so entrenched, this kind of sense of, the goodwill is a lot is a lot more short term than the, than, the, than the doubts, which I think are incredibly entrenched that a lot of people have. People want to have goodwill, but, but you know, it doesn't take people long to kind of, Get on their gripes about about certain things, and, and under, you know, such as the centre back issue, etc. Yeah. And, and, and understandably so, I think there's, you know, I think it's, the FA Cup has bought some goodwill, but it's not, it's not going to last that long. What, what do you make of the issues that we have being in a certain way down to the way that we've been asked to play or the formation that we're playing? That uh, the manager seems quite intent on sticking with a formation and a system that really hasn't clicked at all and it may take time maybe a case that it takes time for this to, to work or to get into the players minds or, or for them to feel comfortable in the positions that they're being asked to, to, to play and the roles they're being asked to fulfill but does there come a point where he has to say okay this really isn't working the way that I thought it was going to work um, I mean there isn't a huge difference in, in the formation but there's something about it that is um, preventing the team finding any kind of rhythm yeah, I mean, you know, it seems to be a perennial problem 
that we have uh, has for years that yeah, you have no one wants to play left wing if you like they all want to kind of be central I think you can almost you know uh, there's so many guys you know you can go back to the kind of uh, Nazari you can go back to you, know, you can go back to Haleb in a way Rizitsky da 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 yeah and no one's got now but no one there seems to be no one ever wants to play left wing if you like and it's always an excuse for, for not kind of quite delivering if you like um mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think I always think I always saw last season. Well, fine, you want to play four five one, but it'd be nice if you could play four four two. You know, because it might, if nothing else, it just causes a bit of variation and a bit of difference. And funnily enough, you know, there are a couple of occasions at Wembley, etc., when when Tenogo came on and we went four four two, and actually, you know, it, it had some effect because it's different and it's not predictable and it's kind of you know and it's changed and and, and so so I sometimes you know I, I do find that rigidity kind of worrying and I don't feel you know it's difficult working out where everyone goes and I, I also think you kind of look at runs that people are having and you know we didn't have that many of our uh, midfielders who were coming into the season on great form if you like yeah. Ramsey was the, Ramsey was the exception if you like and so yeah, I always thought there was a. Yeah, everybody said, "Oh, well, we've got this player, we've got that player, we've got this player, we've got that player." Yeah, football was a lot, a lot about runs and, and momentum, and and I didn't feel other than Ramsey, I didn't, I didn't see lots of kind of arrows pointing upwards at the time. And yeah, I think Wilshere's done well in turning it around. And I'm not saying others have been terrible, but but you know, perhaps perhaps how we, we kind of thought we were in a slightly better position than we were. All right, just uh, very quickly looking ahead to. The weekend's game against Sunderland, they got spanked last weekend, and you're looking at this game going, well, they're a team in terrible form, have been in terrible form all season. Uh, are you confident about our ability to go there? I mean, is it possible that what happened... And I think, yeah. Yeah, I think we've got actually, you know, capability to go there and, and basically put the confidence back into the whist. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I think... Uh, <laughs> no, I kind of... Part of me thinks that they probably... Could have no more no more happier fix than us um, uh, to kind of bounce back off of it in a lot if you like. Mm. It, it's just it's just very hard to, very hard to predict with us. Like, we desperately need wins. Yeah, it's kind of um, you know we so badly, badly, badly need wins, and yeah, it's very hard to predict with us at the moment. Like, you know, it's hard to know what will turn up. Okay, well, look, uh, let's hope Agent Vito does his stuff, and um, we can take we can take three points. Good player, thank you. Thank you. Thank you indeed to Good Player. You can find him on his blog, goodplayer.com, or on Twitter at goodplayer, at goodplayer. So there you go. That was the week that was. The one thing we didn't mention in that particular uh, section was the injury to uh, David Ospina. The uh, the goalkeeper signed in the summer is going to be out for three months, they reckon, with a thigh injury. Uh, a thigh injury that was aggravated by the fact that he had to come on without a warm-up uh, against Galatasaray when Wojciech Chesney got sent off. And uh, because he came on without a warm-up and was kicking the ball all over the place, he uh, he got himself injured again. Now, you know, I'm not a medical professional, or I'm not a physio, or a football manager, or anything like that. But maybe, just maybe, that if you do have a player who's in risk of injuring himself because he doesn't get a proper warm-up, then you shouldn't have him on the bench until such time as that's not uh, a risk anymore. I do wonder who makes that decision. Is it the physio who says, yeah, he'd be okay to sit on the bench, but maybe not play, or the manager who gets uh, to overrule the physio or what? I don't really understand it. But surely if he came with an injury, that the best thing to do would have been to get him 100% fit before we bring him back into the squad and make him sit on the bench. No? I mean... If Chesney's going to play anyway, for the most part, then why not just let him play? The only game that Ospina's played was the um, the uh, Capital One Cup game. We lost. You know, did we learn any more about him in that game than we already knew or didn't know, or the manager certainly having looked at him before he bought him? Just odd, odd. Once again, calls into question our management of injuries. And you know what else I noticed during the week? The Arsenal have a player, a young player who's playing for the under-19s. His name is Mark Bola. Now, you know the way uh, Damien Martinez, or now Emmy Martinez, has changed his name. He's changed it from, from Damien to Emmy Emiliano. What if Mark Bola's middle name is Ernest? And he decides that he doesn't want to be called Mark anymore, and he becomes Ernest. 
Ernest Bola, and on the team sheet, Arsenal have got Ebola. Would anybody be surprised? I don't think so. I certainly wouldn't be if we had Ebola at the training ground. You probably already have it there, but not in a comedy name way, in the real way, with the bleeding and the guts and stuff anyway. Right, earlier this week I spoke to uh, Amy Lawrence uh, about her new book, which is out now. It's in shops. It's available on Amazon and on Kindle and all that, called Invincible, about the uh, the unbeaten season. And really brilliant book it is, too. I highly recommend it. Uh, we had a good chat about that season, about the book writing process, everything else. So uh, grab yourself a couple. Here's a good half hour talking about the best team that any of us have probably ever seen and probably ever will. With me now on the Arscast to discuss her new book entitled Invincible. It's Amy Lawrence. Hi. Hi, Andrew. How are you this morning? I'm uh, I'm well. I'm slightly sore head because, uh, as I was explaining to you just before we started, last night I had the pleasure of um, a small launch party, which I'm just not used to this anymore. I'm just way getting too old. So forgive me <laughs> if I'm a little bit uh, shaky this morning. <laughs> Not to worry. Well, look, you know, um, first off, congratulations, A, on writing a book and B, on writing such a, a fantastic book. Ditto. Well, thanks. <laughs> but obviously you went at it in a very different way than, than the book myself and Andrew did, which was sort of a chronological view of the whole season. And you focus very much on the on the Premier League side of things. But in terms of how you put the book together, I mean, how much time did it take you to figure out the way to approach this because it is a story everyone knows to to a certain extent but i mean there's there's different ways you could tell it well i remember you and i having a phone call several months ago when we both were pussyfooting around this subject that you kind of let loose that you were maybe doing a book and i kind of let loose that i was maybe doing a book and it was like well what's the subject and when we both realised we were both doing books about the invincible, there was that small uncomfortable silence and moment of panic. And like, who's who's just coming out first? And what's yours going to be called? And there was all sorts of slight, um, understandable, I guess, uh, anxiety that, that the two things would be similar. But, but I think, as you pointed out, um, they are rather different beasts, and which I think is great because hopefully they complement one another. Um, when I when I when I was asked to do it. My first instinct was, well, how on earth do we begin to do this? Because I, it, it didn't let, it, it didn't feel like it was going to ever be a chronological book. Mm. So, I then I, I kind of toyed with the idea of maybe making it about the personalities and doing different chapters geared around the individuals involved. But that wasn't quite hap- sort of happening either. So, in the end, it felt like worth having go to do it thematically. So I wasn't convinced I was going to come up with enough different themes um, to, to kind of justify the entire book, but it seemed to to work out. And I think it was a really nice way of weaving together the testimony of the individual players mm. um, in a way to try to bring to life the various aspects. I guess the idea was to try and get under the skin of what makes a successful team, what are the qualities and the characteristics and what is the dynamics within that group that enable a team to become so strong um, for the to, to be able to react during various points and various challenges so that they could overcome essentially you know a, any problem that might have cropped up during that season yeah. and although obviously the some people particularly of, of other clubs get very annoyed it seems about the, the suggestion that it's invincible and uh I've seen a fair few comments from people who seem um, really angry because, oh, that team lost against Middlesbrough twice in the Carling Cup, or how can you say invincible when you got knocked out of the Champions League? Or, yeah. or, or uh, even people seem to take offence to the fact that they drew some games. But the, the, the achievement itself to go unbeaten for an entire season in the Premier League uh, 
it's obviously exceptional because otherwise it would have happened more often. Mm. I mean, I think obviously those people who, who rage against that are fans of, of clubs who've never done it. So um, you, you've got to attack something in a certain way. But when you talk about how these players went through that season and did what they did, there's one word that sticks out in this book for me, and that comes from the players and also from Arsene Wenger, where he talks about intelligence. And, yes. you know, you, we know Arsene Wenger, obviously, is a very intelligent man, but he put together a team of uh, a group of players. And, and in the interviews you've done with them and that you've uh, woven through the book, that really does come across that you're listening to guys who not only were brilliant footballers, but understood football understood the 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 team ethic understood the dressing room understood how to get the best out of each other i mean that that great bit where you interview arson wenger at the end and he talks about white hart lane and winning the league there and because of what happened right at the end of the game he's he's talking about Saul Campbell and and Jens Lehmann nearly having a fight <laughs> you know so i mean these this motivation you know driven out of the intelligence in in pretty much all of those players completely um and as I was going through the, the process of doing the interviews and obviously start off with the first one and then move along and gradually making the way through the team, the more people that I spoke to, the more it kind of hit me over the head of exactly how big a factor this natural intelligence within the group was. Because let's be honest here, I think if you do a straw poll of, of people and say, and say, what qualities do you associate with professional footballers in England? Intelligence probably isn't the first thing that comes into anybody's mind, rightly or wrongly. And anyway, it's a kind of dicey subject to get into because you can be street smart and you can have an, an intelligence in different ways other than being able to spout loads of long words or express yourself well or think about things deeply. Um, but really, the, the, they were all such smart guys. And I very much feel that if any of those players did anything else with their lives and had gifts and life had taken them in a different direction where they hadn't been footballers, they had this intrinsic quality where I think they would have been hugely successful with whatever they chose to do with their life mm. because they had this mixture of the way they used to challenge each other and themselves was really interesting. You know, obviously in a team sport, the idea is for everybody to be together and foster togetherness. But although that was so very strong within the group, there was also this kind of, this massive idea that they were all sparking off each other and challenging each other and looking at each other in the eye. And, and even with a glance, you could tell that they were, think, they were thinking of each other and demanding of each other, are you going to be the best that you can be today? Because mm. I am. Yeah. And Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It was, it, when he threw it all together, it made for a very, very powerful group. And Gilberto Silva painted this very vivid picture that I thought was very striking about when the team would stand in the tunnel, particularly obviously once the season was quite a bit underway. And bear in mind, this is a team that largely had won things in, in its recent history. And um, the bulk of the team had won the league in 2002, had won the FA Cup in 2003. It was only Jens who was new. And prior to that, it was Gilberto coming in and, and, and Colo Torre kind of progressing over that season or two previous. But the core of that team, knew about winning. They had that in, in them and they had it in, them, in, in themselves as a team. Yeah. But they would stand in the, in the tunnel when they came out to play 
and just look at each other. Nobody needed to say anything. And that energy that they had, they, they, they all said it. They said they just felt they were going to win mm. and they just felt they weren't going to lose. And they could co- also, part of that, a big part of it, was they also looked across and saw the opposition. And the, the opposition were kind of wincing and looking <laughs> a little bit scared and, and looking defeated. And yeah. That kind of body language and energy, which is something that's difficult to really describe or put your finger on, was really strong in that group. And that came from those players. It didn't come particularly from Wenger, although it came from Wenger in the, in the sense that he handpicked these players very specifically. He didn't buy these players by accident. He didn't just take a chance. He found out about them. He knew them. He had a gut feeling about them. Even the way he signed Jens Lehmann, I thought was instructive that, you know, Dave Seaman was retiring after a long, long period and he had to get a new keeper in. And he thought, I need a man who is going to deal with being in this group of very powerful personalities. And there's lots of you know pretty good goalkeepers around, but you've got to find one who can walk in and handle that. Yeah. Um, and he, 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 Jens, they didn't go through an agent. Arsene and Jens had telephone conversations, uh, just the two of them. Get, you know those conversations I think were quite intriguing to Arsene because Jens is a is a very direct guy um, and uh, I think it, 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 something in that you know made Arsene's brain tick over and think yes this is this is the guy for us and I, and I love the fact that he turned and said well, he's either going to be a complete disaster or he's going to be perfect <laughs> and it, it turned out that he was so perfect that Patrick Vieira later said that Jens's influence was such that it actually cranked up the winning mentality within the group because um, he was so demanding of everybody else. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of amazing because w- w- you're right to talk about them doing what they did in, in 2002. Um, but even when I spoke to, to Graham Stack, um, who was the reserve goalkeeper for most of that season and played some of the cup games, he was able to tell me that you know, they, they were going on the bus to away grounds and they weren't afraid. And this is a, a he was a kid at the time. But that, obviously that, um, what they created rubbed off on even the inexperienced players to a certain extent. That there's just such trust in these guys because of their age, because of their experience, because they've done it, that, you know, you can be a young goalkeeper and still feel the same way, even if you don't have any real standing in the game. I think it's a combination of, you know, they had done it. And when you look at, obviously, Henri Vieira won the World Cup, so Gilberto, Dennis Bergkamp won loads in his career, um, you know, as a group, the, the, the Sol Campbell, Lauren, um, Ashley Cole, mm. uh, Freddie Jungberg had all arrived and won lots of things with Arsenal. But as important as it was that they won things, an equal impulse was that they'd blown it. The and previous season. When you have a strong competitive spirit like all of these guys had, the experience of coming close and not doing it, that burning that they felt, was was fuel in a different way. So they had a kind of double fuel of the experience of perhaps they should have won the league in 2003 and they blew it in the end against Bolton, which hurt them like mad. Yeah. Added to the fact that they won it in 2002 and they knew what they needed to do to do it. May you know the combination of those the positive and the negative impulse, I think just made them even more hungry. Mm. At the time, obviously, the the rivalry between Arsenal and Manchester United was incredible, and I don't think we've seen anything like it since. And I don't know that we're ever going to see anything like it again. To be honest, um, just I agree the, with that. I agree with that because now there's just it was a direct rivalry it was yeah. against one, and it's it's not like that anymore. But it was two brilliant managers, probably at their their very best. Two incredible teams, and you listen to Roy Keane talking about you know how he hated Arsenal, he hated playing against Vieira, hated everyone, um, you know, which is a, a fairly Roy Keane thing to do or or say, I suppose. But it, it really did embody what the Premier League or the Premiership, as it was. Uh, back then was about that these just two absolutely brilliant teams kicking the shit out of each other and playing brilliant football at the same time. So we have this Old Trafford incident and what happened that day. And it was interesting because Arsenal obviously have to uh, hold their hands up after the game and say, well, look, yeah, okay, fair enough. We shouldn't have done that. But Arsene Wenger talks about how proud he was of his players and the way that they stood up for each other. I mean, that game 
even if there was that belief in character within the Arsenal squad, it just strikes me that that game was almost like a redoubling of that in a way that really uh, provided inspiration and motivation for the rest of the season. I think it was fascinating for Arsene to to admit that now because clearly at the time there's no way you can come no, out and can't. say something like that. They were, I think everyone was in enough trouble as it was. Um, but it, it was a fascinating revelation that you can get with distance to turn around and say, yeah, of course I was proud of what that showed about what this team meant for one another. And when you hear Martin Keown describe how he felt he was Patrick Vieira's minder. And, you know, he had worked out for himself. No one needed to tell him when I mean, it was fairly obvious anyway that you need Patrick Vieira in your team if you're going to win the difficult matches. Um, and the way that various other uh, situations in the past, he'd been targeted by people who tried to provoke him. Um, obviously, the kind of Neil Ruddock scenarios, for example. Yeah. Keon thought he had to look after Patrick even though you look at Patrick and think he probably didn't really need looking after, but yeah. you get the gist. Um, and that feeling that they all had when Van Nistelrooy um, made it easy for the referee to send Patrick off just it made everybody go mad. And when you hear someone like Lauren, who is a, quite a gentle soul as it goes, um, obviously such a tough competitor when he played, but you hear him talk, and he's a very, very laid-back, easygoing, um, quite thoughtful guy. And he was almost a bit embarrassed. I think some some of the players seem slightly embarrassed when they think about it now and they're a bit more grown up, and they realise that what they did on the day doesn't look good. But I think equally, deep down, they know it was the right thing and that they probably would do the same thing again. Mm. Just because you have to, because I think it was... They felt like they had to stand up for one. And it was all about, they felt that their blood brother had been slighted. So they had to respond to for him. And that response might not have looked good for the rest of the world. And they had to pay the price with some heavy fines and some bans, which tested the squad. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things about that season that's interesting is it's very easy to reel off the names of the first 11, but that the squad players who don't necessarily get the same level of credit for being an invincible really stepped in when they were needed. Yeah. I mean, there were moments um, when Lauren had his ban and he was injured and Colo Toure, obviously um, a guy who was, who was moved uh, into center half. I mean, there was talk about playing uh, Justin Hoyt, uh, right back, you know, and I know I'm not trying to compare the two squads, but there are times when we look at our squad and wonder, oh my goodness, you know, we don't necessarily have the right defensive depth. But, you know, there were issues back then as well that... Um, Pascal Sagan was never a popular player, but in the end, his yeah. if he has a mantelpiece or trophy cabinet or whatever he has at his home, he's got a gold edition of the Premier League trophy, thanks very much. Yeah. Stepped in when he was needed. He wasn't the best player in that squad. Um, he was maligned. You know, he wasn't great, let's be honest, over quite a lot of his Arsenal career, but he was needed and he stepped up. Yeah. But more to the point, people like Edu and Parler, and we'll mention Keown. And Keown's an interesting case because half of his value again that season, he only played 10 games, he only just got on at the end. A lot of those league games were, were substitutes appearances to try and get to the magic number to get a medal. Yeah. But his influence in the dressing room and on the training pitch the way he decided he was going to help Colo Torre and you know, make sure that he had all the information he needed to do what was necessary in every match. Um, that was, you know, those kind of elements are vital and that sense of the collective was huge. There's a story Arsene Wenger um, talks about when, when Keown uh, is coming up to the last game of the season and Keown obviously isn't going to be in the team, be on the bench. But he talks about him going and doing extra training the day before because that's just the kind of the kind of character he had, um, which is, I suppose... Which is exactly why you can imagine that it was so tempting for Ray Parler on that last game <laughs> against Leicester to take one look at Martin Keown warming up. And apparently he'd even told the referee before the game, like, I'm coming on, so don't you dare blow the whistle until I've come on. <laughs> And Ray thought, I've got to do this, you know, and took his uh, tracksuit off and started warming up in front of Arsene Wenger just on a wind-up. So, (laughs) and the story goes is that Martin Keown went and virtually grabbed uh, Arsene around the neck, you know. (laughs) So, couldn't couldn't, uh, obviously deal with the fact that there was that chance of of not having that um, 
that uh, uh, kind of symbol of, of yeah. the success of the season <laughs> for the rest of his life in the medal, but obviously it all worked out in the end. Um, Arsene Wenger talks about it being an achievement that happened just in time, that nowadays it would be much more difficult to do. And I suppose what what's also interesting is that he talks about how once they'd won the, the championship at White Hart Lane, that the most scared he was was for the final four games because of the the difficulty of keeping players focused on the on the job at hand because they're sitting there thinking, well, we've won the title. And we've seen it happen before that a team wins a title and the next couple of games they just kind of coast through them and it doesn't really matter whether you've whether you've uh, whether you win them or not. But when you've got something like that in the distance, four games away, um, as he said, I want you to become immortal. I mean, that must have been not only hugely challenging for Arsene Wenger to keep them focused, but also the players themselves, because f- for the most part, they'd have thought job done. I think what I underestimated. Um but found out from from what the players themselves explained is how much they needed the motivation of knowing that they were going to actually win something or have some kind of reward. Mm. And Thierry Henry called it an invisible prize this unbeaten season because you don't actually get anything for it. And okay, in the future, the Premier League decided that you know they ought to mark this achievement and made up a gold Premier League trophy. But it... it it's just um, this sense that they, you know, for them it was about winning the league, which is what it always is. And and so many of the players were just adamant, like, win the league, win the league. They were so focused on winning the thing that you're, you set out to do, which is the normal ambition. So they almost couldn't get their head round this unbeaten season. And I think it was something that the fans almost felt a lot more strongly and could identify with as a as an achievement than the actual players themselves because they're not really programmed that way. They're programmed to think about you win your matches and you pick up your trophy. But there was no trophy at that time for finishing unbeaten. It was an abstract kind of a prize that they were aiming for. So there's that allied to the fact that they were obviously kind of knackered from the natural adrenaline of you win the league at White Hart Lane and then you just take a deep breath. It's difficult to recharge and get your bodies going again. Um, they did find it hard. And I think Wenger was almost exasperated at times because it was as if he couldn't quite get through to them what quite what was quite what kind of level of history that they were going to mm. tick off. There was that Thierry Henry film out last year where he talked about it and he said, you know, at the time, he, he, well, we're all, well, we've just won the league. And he said, now when I look back at it, if we hadn't done it, he'd, he'd have been really pissed off <laughs> if they hadn't done it. But, you know, at the time, like you say, um, it's just trying to get get focused. Is there a performance that epitomizes the quality and character of the team more than the Liverpool game on Good Friday? Do you think? I think that's the one. It was knowing how close it was to all falling apart that makes it so special that it didn't. Um, you know that that numbness almost at half time. And obviously Omri talks about it really well when he talks about how he felt the stadium sort of stopped breathing. And what's interesting is how it seemed that that actual dynamic, that great dynamic that we talked about at the, be- at the beginning of the- this chat of the power and the team that they had and the intelligence, all that seemed to kind of fade out as well in that moment, in that halftime. Keon says he remembers walking into the dressing room and he was in a, a kind of interesting that observation role. He, he'd not been playing some of those matches. He'd been around, he'd been at all the training sessions, he'd been on all the buses, he'd gone to all the games, but he wasn't actually on the pitch uh, for a lot of those matches in that period. And so he was watching more than he, he, what was happening to the others. And he felt he felt so worried because he couldn't see the reaction. He said they just all looked like they were kind of almost zombified by it. It was a difficult week, though, as well, because there have been the Champions League and the FA Cup exits leading up to that game. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting with that benefit of distance, again, 10 years down the line, is how pretty much all the players, it still hurts that they didn't win the Champions League that year. Mm. And when you think of Arsenal reaching the final uh, in 2006 with a quite different team, and obviously being much closer to winning it because they came within a number of minutes of 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 winning the Champions League and in 2004 went out at the quarter-final stage. So still 
a rest of a quarter final that they didn't manage and a semi final and a final. Um, they that team that was the team that should have won the Champions League. That's what they feel. They feel that they were the best team in Europe then. Yeah, uh, and I think that the the shock really of I think they, there was a little little bit of thinking that this could be their season. So that was a really massive psychological blow to go out the Champions League, um, and coming just a few days after going out the FA Cup as well to Man United, who obviously are the main rivals. It was unimaginable that suddenly it was like the league's going to go as well, being 2-1 down to Liverpool. It, it, they just were completely and utterly shell-shocked. Um, and Martin explains how he felt. He, he asked Arsene Wenger to speak at half-time, which he would never normally do, um, because he felt everybody needed lifting, including Arsene Wenger and Pat Rice, who would normally be the ones who were conversing at half-time. Yeah. Just to remind everyone of how good they were and what they were good at and just get a goal back and everything turns again. The wheels start turning. And that's what happened. And it was Robert Perez who, you know, everybody talks about that game about Henri and his unbelievable hat-trick. But Perez was mightily important with just a typical goal of his where he had this uncanny ability to just find the right moment in the right space to, um, you know, to score important goals. Having Having spoken to many of the players in the course of doing, you know, the research for the book, et cetera, et cetera. How did they look back on it? Because we, as fans, can look back on it and think, wow, that was amazing. And I think in time or given time, we've come to realize just how amazing it was. Because maybe maybe back then we were used to winning titles. We were used to competing at uh, the top of the table. Winning the league didn't seem unusual. Winning it without losing a game obviously was something different but as you look back from now to there what what it was was remarkable I mean do they feel the same way in that um, it was kind of once in a lifetime stuff I think they do but I think they didn't feel it at the time um, there was the, the, so many of the players said that it was something they've only really learned to appreciate more recently a lot of them said they didn't really appreciate it till they retired stopped playing obviously some are still playing but I think fairly soon afterwards, Freddie Youngberg said he found it a bit weird. People kept coming up saying, oh, what about the Invincibles and the Invincible season and unbeaten and this and that. And he kind of he kind of couldn't quite get his head around it because um, it was more about winning the league for him. And that season felt like it was more about Arsenal won the league at White Hart Lane and how much he enjoyed that particular situation. Yeah. And it needed time and it needed people to keep coming up and mentioning it. And, he, and so many of the players say that of all their achievements in their life, or in their footballing lives, that's the one that people talk about the most. Um, so it, it clearly has a resonance and a significance. I mean, you know, even someone like Dennis Bergkamp, who obviously has a lot of accolades from his career, I think they, they're, they're quite nostalgic about it. And I think they're nostalgic about each other as well you know whenever they see each other there's something very deep that can be unspoken but they know what they shared they know what they went through it does seem like a lot of them are still in touch yeah i think they are i think most of them are are still in touch and would always would always be there for one another and are always very very happy to see one another yeah um i mean just one thing i quickly mention is is i was quite struck talking to gilberto um, 10 years on, back in Brazil. And he became quite emotional when the subject of Highbury came up and playing there. And you kind of think, wow, it's, uh, here's a guy from a different continent. Yeah. He's not brought up on uh, the history of the club in the same way as uh, as people who go regularly and you know have it more in their blood, so to speak. And he suddenly started thinking about when he was playing at Highbury and in and those times and he sort of was lost for words and said his heart was beating really quickly and became <laughs> very emotional. And I think that that's really meaningful. Final question, I guess, is did what happened back then, how, uh, has it had an impact on things now uh, in the sense that it might have set a standard which perhaps is no longer achievable or it raised the bar so high that... When you when you fall below that, and that's not to sort of make any excuses about where we are now and what we're doing, that in the in the wake of that, it feels a bit worse than it actually is. 
I don't know if it's so much to do with the Invincibles. I think there was that whole period, that whole first half of the Venga era, if you like, which sets the standard against which the latter half of his career is judged. But what really bewilders me most when I think about that time is when you look at Arsene, you think he he knows exactly what is needed to have a hugely successful team in the mm. Premier League because he built that team. He worked with it every day. He honed it and improved it and challenged it and understood it better than anybody. He knows exactly what qualities and characteristics made that team tick. And when he talks about exactly what you mentioned about Old Trafford and how he was proud of the way they stuck up for each other and, you know, would have gone to war with each other as such was almost his turn of phrase. And you, and you, that's where it's very hard to, to tally that up with mm. some of the, the, the teams uh, that he subsequently built. And when he, he remembers players like Vieira and Sol Campbell and Gilberto Silva and talks about what warriors they were, and he to, when he talks about the physical strength of the team, all those attributes that bit by bit he brought these players together and put them in, in the team to make the whole, he knows better than anybody what value that gives you. Yeah. And that's where reconciling that with a team that is more fragile, more vulnerable, less physically intimidating, um, the kind of problems that are constantly thrown at this current, current Arsenal team that they can't cope with so well, you think, well, he knows. <laughs> So I think that's the that's the conundrum for me. Just on that, very briefly, is that the in the interview with him in that chapter, he talks about seeing a player like Lauren and saying you're a right back, and Lauren's going, no, I'm I'm a midfielder, uh, or I can play on the right side of midfield. And Arsene says, no, you're a right back, and he looks at Colo Toure and he says, centre half. And you give the example, uh, and he speaks about it himself of Lucas Podolski, and he says he bought Lucas Podolski to be centre forward but then he had to step back and revise his judgment on that in that sense so the 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 ability perhaps to reinvent players or to find the best place for a player is something he's maybe struggling with a bit as well well maybe that's because it's always been a big part of what he's done I mean even before coming to Arsenal a player like Lilian Thuram who was, uh, was one of the great defenders of his generation was not a defender when he first started working with Wenger uh, at Monaco and he'd had so much success in taking players who thought that they were one position and convincing them to play another position mm. uh, and particularly in that early period of of, um, of his time at Arsenal obviously Emmanuel Petit coming in from left back to centre half to link up with with, um, with Vieira was was a phenomenon at the time and then in comes Henri, who's a winger apparently at Juventus and for France, but becomes the great centre forward of his era in the Premier League. And as you mentioned, Lauren, who really wanted to play midfield all the time, Freddie Jungberg found it incredibly difficult to adjust to playing on the wing to the point where after a season at Arsenal he wanted to leave, and then decided that he was, you know, he had a, a dilemma: do I go and play somewhere else and play where I want to play, or do I? do I take the difficult option, which is to stay because this is where I want to be and change myself, even though that's not what I want to do as a player. And he chose the difficult option and stayed because he was desperate to make it work. He was a no, he wanted to play like a number 10 position. Yes, that had been his, uh, his preferred position when he played in Sweden. Um, and coming over to Arsenal, you know, Arsenal, again, it's going back to that whole physical element that, when people look at Arsenal's midfield now and think, where are the great big, you know, huge, powerful ball winners? Um, Freddie wanted to play kind of in midfield or attacking midfield in the centre where he'd always played. And Arsenal said, if you're going to do that in England, you're going to get kicked to bits. Uh, if you want to be brilliant in this league, you need to go out wide where you, you've got uh, room without getting kicked to bits to um to express yourself and and use your energy and your and your creativity there and your brilliant um vision and eye for where people are where to move so that connection with Bergkamp but he needed convincing of that he yeah. was really upset about it to start with and and Wenger had this kind of magic formula where he would 
he almost enjoyed the challenge, I think, sometimes of when a player, when he was sure in his head that a move would work and a player was a bit resistant to it, he just kept plugging away until everything worked. And and the rewards were very consistent. But perhaps because of that history he has, that great history of, of remodeling players, he still feels that's something that, you know, he likes to do. Um, but it's... It, it, <laughs> it seems to be a bit more complicated at the moment because for some reason the combination of players where they want to play the system the balance is not quite right all right well look we won't we won't go into that because uh that's a, a discussion for every other day and this has been a <laughs> we could talk about this and this team and this book all day as well amy thank you very much the book is called invincible you should buy it by amy lawrence published by viking um i'll let you go and let the hangover uh, recede <laughs> oh, thanks so much what an amazing team that was, and there are just so many memories from from that season. Uh, when we were talking about the uh, the Liverpool game and Thierry Henry doing what he did, this even thinking about it now gives me kind of gives me kind of shiver. So if you want to relive it uh, through the words of Amy Lawrence, you can pick up the book. It's called Invincible, and there are of course still some uh, of the Ars blog books left. Uh, together, the story of Arsenal's unbeaten season. You can get that on Kindle as well, or you can get it through the website. Click on the books tab at the top of the website, and you'll find the links there. There's also the audio book as well. I don't know if I mentioned that, but the audio book is out. You can get it on shop.arsblog.com and that's me reading the book to you. So you don't even have to lift a finger, flick a page. You can just walk around and listen to me reading a book to you. So uh, check that out too. Um, Yeah, I don't know what else. Oh, we had a book competition last week, didn't we? We gave you two copies of uh, the book about Jordi Armstrong, Jordi Armstrong on the Wing by Dave Seeger. I asked you, how many appearances did Jordi Armstrong make for Arsenal? The answer was 621. 621. The two winners chosen at random by the random number generator are John DC and also Jonathan Hausman. So there you go. Well done to you two guys. I'll be in touch. We'll get all the information. I was going to look ahead to the Sunderland game from a uh, team point of view, but at this point, there isn't any real team news. Um, maybe the best we could hope for is to get Kasialny back. Still not convinced that'll happen, so the manager uh, will have a decision to make about what way to set up his team, given the fact that Monreal at centre-half is really not working. Uh, perhaps he should just bite the bullet and just play Bellerin at right back and play Chambers at centre-half, who's more comfortable there than Monreal, I think. The other thing I would be interested to see is Mikel Arteta back. I was expecting to see him in the team uh, in midweek against Anderlecht, and he wasn't, and it's not clearly because Flamini is playing brilliantly at the moment because, well, he's not. So I do wonder if Arteta is 100% fit yet. Maybe the manager uh, isn't risking him. You could see as well maybe Thomas Rzitzki. Could he get a game? There was a brilliant picture, wasn't there, after the Anderlecht game of the um, of the bench reacting to the goal, to the Lucas Podolski goal. And they're all jumping in the air. Arteta's jumping in the air. Flamini's jumping in the air. Cazorla's jumping in the air. Arsene Wenger's about to do a, uh, a little jig. Uh, Steve Bold is there. You can see Hector Beller in there. And Thomas Rzitzki is just sitting there. And you're thinking his version of the picture needs a soundtrack. And there's only one piece of music that, that will do it. So look, um, Sunderland at the Stadium of Light, after they've just been beaten 8-0 and after we've just fluked a win in midweek, your guess as to what happens is as good as mine. But join me on Monday for the Arscast Extra. Myself and James will look back on everything that's happened at the weekend and, of course, answer all your questions. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'll chat to you on next week's Arscast. So until then, have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Join us as we take another enchanting adventure into the world of the angriest man on Twitter. Oi, Arsenal, what is going on? You're losing to Endelect, a team from Belgium, a country that is only known for a statue of a little boy having a piss in cuckoo clocks. You absolute... Oh, Carl Gibbs! Oh, well, look at... Dr- oh, Carl Podolski! We won! But we were shit! I'm still angry! I don't know how t- to feel about this! It's happy anger! Hanger! Ah, does not compute! Next week, another madcap laugh-a-minute romp with the angriest man on Twitter. Everything is shit! Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 